we, we spoke last week about the importance of the cross, and we took a deeper look, uh, a deeper examination, if you will, of Jesus' own teaching about the cross and uh, how that should impact our understanding of the gospel. And uh, so we're going to find ourselves this morning at, his, at what is known as and what is considered to be one of the loftiest texts of Scripture. And you may not know what I mean by that, but uh, I simply mean that you know, there, there are some texts that are sort of, um, they're, they're considered like the Mount Everest, uh, if you will, of the texts in the Bible and of the accounts and the stories. And uh, this morning, we are going to, we're going to turn our attention to one of those lofty accounts. It is known as the Transfiguration. Uh, it is when Jesus is up on the mountain with a few of his disciples and he is transformed before them. And uh, they get to, to have an experience like uh, nothing that they have ever had before. And before we read, I just want to sort of kind of turn your mind to the topic this morning and to help you focus and to think a little bit, even as we read the story together. But I want you to think, I want you to think about a time in your life when you had a, a lofty event, a, a life transforming event. And for many of us, that event may be negative. Uh, it, may, it may be a, a bad thing, at least from our perspective, or a difficult situation, a difficult circumstance that altered the course of our life and transformed us and changed us forever. And we can look back on that day and say, from that day forward, I, I was certainly never the same. But for all of us in this room who uh, know Jesus Christ intimately and have entered into a relationship with him by faith, I would hope that it is not only those negative events, those difficult circumstances that have shaped the course of our path. And so um, I, I would hope that we can look back at the time when we were brought from darkness to light and, and when we entered into this relationship by faith with Christ and when, when we were transformed and given a new heart and a new life in him. And we can look back on that day and say, wow, um, what an encounter I had with, with Jesus, with the Savior and and, and I have never been the same since. But there may, be other, there may be other things in your life that have happened, both good, bad, um, but that have transformed uh, or shaped the course of your life. And I would argue that in this lofty passage this morning, that for the three men who are with Jesus, that they experience one of those life-transforming events. That this is an event that changes their understandings, it changes their mind, it changes their goals, it changes their hopes and dreams, it affects their fears, it transforms everything about who they are. And um, I hope that if, if we are able to look carefully at it and to examine some basic things from it this morning in light of uh, what it is and how it was received by the men that were there, that it also can help us to be transformed. And it can be uh, something that impacts our fears and our hopes and our goals and our drives and can set us on a path um, that, that we need to be on, but, but can set us on a path to glory. And uh, so I hope that this can be a life-transforming passage uh, as it was, uh, I think, as it was when, when it originally happened with these men. So we're going to find ourselves in Mark chapter 9 this morning. Let's read verse 1 that we concluded our text last week with chapter 9 verse 1, but we're going to read it again, chapter 9, verse 1, uh, and we will read down through verse 13 of this text. Before we read together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the cross that uh, upon it Jesus died 
Lord, and that your mercy was expressed to us and flows to us through his blood. Uh, Lord, make us mindful of who he is and what he's done on our behalf as we read this story this morning. But Lord, also help us to grasp the nature and the gravity and the weight of this text this morning. Um, May we make at least some progress uh, up the mountain this morning as we read it together. So open our minds and our eyes and our hearts together that we might be illumined by your spirit to understand the truth of the scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one these things that they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him and said, why do, you descri- why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it? And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did not, uh, they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Um, I have, if you were with us at Christmas, or if you've listened to that sermon online, then you know that I have given you a glimpse into my personal struggles with manger scenes. Uh, I have told you about my concern for them, at least to some degree, uh, and I. I do have one. So a lot of people pointed that out to me, and I told them that I, at full disclosure, I said that when I told about my concerns with them. But I've told you about my concerns with major scenes, and um, to, to sort of boil it all down, the central issue that I have with major scenes is that there was an actual Jesus, but that none of us know what he looked like. And, and so any image of Christ that we make is necessarily uh, a carved image, a, a made-up image, and it doesn't—it's impossible for it to accurately reflect Jesus. And so, I have some concerns about that, but but that's not really the point. One of my one of my points is simply to say: Have you ever wondered what Jesus really looked like? Um, isn't it interesting that we're never told in the Bible that of everything that we're told about, I mean, we're never given any glimpse into the physical appearance of Jesus. Well, none of the details. I mean, we don't know what color his hair was and what color his eyes were, and how dark or light his skin might have been or might not have been and um, what his stature might have been. And we can, I think, glean some things from the Bible and make some assumptions about that, but it can be dangerous to make those assumptions. And the reality is that the Bible simply never tells us explicitly what Jesus looked like. But I wonder sometimes what he looked like. And I think in this passage, he is intending to give at least a glimpse to his disciples of what he truly looks like. You know, as he walked from day to day, did he look like God? Maybe, you know, so, so it's God incarnate. It's God in the flesh. We remember at the beginning of Mark, press your minds way back when we began this book. It's a book about the king 
breaking into creation and becoming a part of creation in order that he might redeem creation. So it's this recreation event when, when the cosmos is opened and Jesus, God in the flesh, descends to be among us. There's this unbelievable event that God is among us. And, and then he goes about telling people, I am God, uh, telling the Pharisees and the, the scribes and the religious leaders that did not like him and that stood in opposition to him, making clear to them that I am not just a man. I am not like you. I am not like another teacher. I am not just a guru, but I'm God. But he didn't look like God. You know, you know what we would do with someone who walked around claiming to be God, who just looked like me and you? We would think he was crazy. I mean, we, I would not listen to him. I would tell people to run from him. And, and I want you in some way to, to at least a little bit sympathize with the struggle that the disciples must have had. Because it wasn't simply that Jesus came and had a crown and rode a horse and held a scepter. I mean, we've talked about all of those things. He, he didn't look like a king. And he didn't really look like God, I don't think. I think he looked like an everyday guy. In his full humanity, the divinity was restricted so that he looked like everyone else. And so I want, you to, I want you to see that they have come to believe in this Jesus. They have come to follow this man. They have left their nets. They have left their tax offices. They have left their families. And they have pursued this man, Jesus, who claims to be more than a man, but he doesn't really look like a man. And they've certainly seen him do some things that are pretty uh, not like a man. He's, he, they've seen some incredible miracles demonstrating his divinity. But then he tells them, as we saw and we examined last week, that yes, I'm God, but I'm going to suffer and die. Don't you think that this would have caused a resurgence of those fears and those doubts and those problems? What could be less godly than death at the hands of mere mortals? Have you thought about that? So that as they have followed him and as he is leading them and as they have given up everything for him and, and Peter finally comes to the realization that he is indeed the Messiah. You are the Christ. And then Jesus says, yes, but I'm going to suffer and die and be buried in the grave. I'm going to raise again, but, but it, I'm going to die. And, 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 and Peter's fears, I'm not just assuming that they would have resurged back to the surface, we see them expressed in that passage at the end of chapter 8 where he begins to rebuke Jesus and say, no, Lord, that cannot be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And so their fears are right there on the surface at any moment about to bubble over. And I want you to at least feel feel the, 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 the realness of their concern and of their doubt that, that as they are believing in Jesus and following him by faith, the least godly thing that could happen, the least godlike thing that could happen. He is prophesying now, and the, the focus of his ministry is leading toward and is with an eye toward the cross, to Jerusalem, to Calvary. And so there's this, there's this identity crisis, I think, in, in the disciples. I mean, that, that they are, I think, potentially struggling mightily. How can this be? that you claim to be God, and we have given up everything to follow you, and you say that you're going to save us, but you're acting like a man, and you're going to die like a man, and you just look like a man. Well, this passage then is going to serve two purposes. 
this passage, both for the disciples, I think for Jesus himself, and in large part for us, it is going to serve as an act of demonstration and an act of encouragement. An act of demonstration and an act of encouragement. He is going to demonstrate for them who he is in a miraculous, unbelievable, divine way that they have never experienced before in a greater fullness than they have ever experienced before so as to give them what they need to encourage their progression and their trust and their walk in faith. So it's going to serve as a story that brings about demonstration and encouragement. Now, uh, finally, by way of introduction, I want you to notice the parallels in this passage between uh, between it and what we have already read in a couple of other stories. One is the baptism of Jesus. If you were with us, and if you weren't, it's not a problem, but if you were with us, you'll remember that I made a strong argument that I, that I believe that is a a recreation account and that there are some extreme substantial parallels between what we see in Mark and in Matthew and in other gospel accounts of the baptism of Jesus and what was going on in Genesis chapter 1 where God is breaking into the cosmos and the Trinity is at work to, to create. And, and so in the baptism of Jesus with the inauguration of his coming, God is breaking open the heavens and entering into creation to do what was not done the first time, to recreate and to restore and to redeem those things that have been broken and lost and to bring them back to himself. And so so the coming of Jesus in his baptism is not just a story so that, you know, it's not just a simple story and it's not to be taken simply at face value. It's the inauguration of the, of, of the coming of the king uh, in his divinity. And I want you to see specifically the language that is used Look at verse 7. Notice, remember in the baptism of Jesus that the clouds parted. What do we see in verse 7? And a cloud came and overshadowed them. Okay? So the clouds are now present again. It seems like when, when God is, is, is breaking into creation and is dealing directly with men, think about the baptism of Jesus, think about the cross. When, when, when the sky goes dark and creation goes dark, I think cloud cover there. The cloud is present again and came and overshadowed them. And here it is. And a voice came out of the clouds. God's always speaking from or through the clouds. And so the voice comes down again with a pronouncement. And the pronouncement is the same. Doesn't this language sound familiar? This is my beloved son, Matthew tells us. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You see it here. This is my Son, my beloved son, hear him. Matthew goes further to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. It's the exact same language that was used the last time and only other time that it was used at his baptism. So that something is being said to us about the nature of Jesus' coming. First at the baptism, it was the inauguration that the king has come. I would argue that I think at least... In some way, this is a parallel account that says to us, the king has come and now he is bringing his kingdom. Do do you see that? So so that we need to see, and that's going to help us in understanding chapter 9, verse 1. Those enigmatic words of Jesus where he proclaims that there are those standing here who will not taste death before the what? The kingdom of God comes in power. Well, if this is an account that that foreshadows and, and makes clear that the kingdom has come with the king, then we know what chapter 9, verse 1 is speaking about 
Is this exact event, the transfiguration that precedes it immediately, not the second coming, as so many people want to say, uh, not the resurrection? I mean, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't when he came in power, was it? People didn't even recognize who he was. When Jesus comes in power uh, in the end of the age, everybody will know who he is. When the kingdom is completely and fully consummated. But I think that in part, though not fully, I think that in part... Jesus was demonstrating the power and the glory and the majesty of his kingdom for his people that they might press on the road of suffering. That's what we saw last time, isn't it? That the cross, it caused Jesus to suffer, it caused God to suffer, and it caused his people to suffer. To bear our cross and go after him. Right? We saw that last time. And so now he's saying, but take heart... Because look what is coming. And so he gives them in a new way and in a different way and in a way that they have never experienced before. You say, well, Jesus has demonstrated his divinity and his glory. Well, he has in in veiled ways, in covered ways, in, uh, you know, metaphoric ways. This is not a metaphor. Three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, they are going to go up onto the mountain and at the transfiguration of Jesus, he is going to be, though we don't know all of the details, he is going to be more, it's from the word we get metamorphosis, he is going to be morphed or changed or transformed into something that resembles the true and majestic glory of his godness so that for them he will no longer be just a man. So that for these disciples first, this demonstration of who he was, as they are struggling, they are doubting, they are not seeing him as God, they are trying to figure out what all of these prophecies, this teaching means that he's making about heading to the cross. And he he takes just a couple of them. It's interesting, isn't it? I would have thought, you know, get the video cameras out, you know, get the big screen out. Let's show everybody. Jesus, in his, in his compassion, remember, we, we've seen time and again that Jesus deals specifically with specific people. The, the, the precious and unique and, and individual call of Jesus, that he deals with you. It's, it's not just a universal call, that Jesus cares enough and loves enough to deal with individual people. Not because they deserve it, but because they, they, they are loved by him simply because he wants to and because he has an interest in them. And so he deals with these three, it's only the three, but he takes them up on the mountain in the midst of their fears, in the midst of their troubles, and he demonstrates in this unbelievable, miraculous way that parallels his coming as the king. He is going to demonstrate for them his true identity is the divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, to let them know that better is coming. Trust me. Trust me. Because he didn't look like God, did he? He was an ordinary guy. And, and, and if he was to be believed in, he was, only, he was only going to be believed by faith. Well, guys, isn't it the same for us? Isn't it the same for us? Yes, we have the testimony of the Scriptures. Yes, we have the 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 advantage of looking back to the cross and all that it held. Yes, we're given a little better perspective and a little clearer spectacle through which to look and observe. But in the end, Jesus is 
still veiled from our eyes and 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 enlarged maybe large uh, largely fault largely the fault of, of churches and pastors and Christian music and so many other areas of our ministry, Jesus becomes ordinary like he was for them. He was a regular guy. Je- Jesus is somewhat domesticated. You know, he, he's this happy-go-lucky, inspiring, encouraging teacher that we put in our back pocket and we pull out when we need a little bit of help to get over the bump. And, and in some ways... I think maybe that's a little bit of how the disciples struggled because he was so familiar to them and he was with them and looked like them and came from the place that they came from and spoke the language that they did. He was, he was a man to them. But Jesus is taking them on the mountain and through this passage and through the scriptures is taking us up onto the mountain to say to them and to say to us, I am not domesticated. I am not safe in C.S. Lewis's words. I'm not a tame lion. I am, I am God. I'm God, and you have to believe me, and you have to trust me that as you walk through the valley, as you walk through the shadows, as you as you labor in suffering, that if you will walk with me to the cross, you will raise or rise with me to glory. He's giving them a glimpse of what is coming. He, he is showing them who he really is. Does this not also parallel then what I argued for on the passage when Jesus, just back in chapter 6 of Mark, just a few weeks ago, when Jesus, the disciples are out on the boat on the water, and another storm arises and Jesus is on the shore. You remember what we talked about in that text? That Jesus goes out to them walking on the water, which is what we all focus on and what we all think about. But what does it say that he intended to do? He intended to pass them by. You remember that? Why in the world did Jesus intend to pass them by? Well, don't you remember he was glowing? They thought it was a ghost in the pitch black dark in the early morning. Why did they think it was a ghost or an apparition? Because he was glowing in in some way. He was shining. Well, what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? He was shining. What happened when Moses came off the mount? He was shining. He was reflecting the glory of God. What happened when when, when God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock? He had to cover up. The, the opening and only give him but just a small glimpse of the glory as it passed by him. Th- this glow, this shine of the majesty and glory of God. He passes them by because he's giving them a glimpse, but I think even then it was much more veiled. Now, this is not going to be uh, a veiled view of glory, nor like Moses when he comes down to the people, is it going to be a reflected Glory. Jesus takes his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, these three guys, up onto the mountain and lets them view his glory. Clearly, plainly. I cannot imagine. They get to stand before God. And let me simply note how merciful is God to his disciples on this day? And to us, that he would ever, ever give us a view of who he is. That that he would ever welcome us into his court. That he would ever open the doors of his kingdom and let us see and behold his majesty. You and I do not deserve that. How merciful. Do you see now the song, Mercy Speaks by Jesus' Blood? It's an act of mercy. 
But he takes them up on the cross after he calls them to bear the cross. He takes them up onto the mountain that he might show them, he might demonstrate to them, that he might, that he might give them this vision, this clear, un, unclouded view, this direct access to his glory and his majesty. And I think this is also a demonstration for us, that we might see him, that we might behold him. And let me, let me simply encourage you this morning, friends, please don't try to domesticate Jesus. Don't, don't try to make him something that you can pack into your little box and take with you. Make an effort at standing back and beholding his glory, at, 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 at fearing him, and falling down on your face in awe before him and saying, God, I am unworthy and I am broken. And, and, and I don't deserve to be, to be standing here. I don't deserve the knowledge that you've given me. I don't deserve the scriptures that teach me about you that you've given me. I don't deserve the family that I have. I, you have. You have revealed yourself to me and it is only because of your self-revelation, not my pursuit, it is only because of this self-revelation that any of us come into a relationship with Jesus. As he pursues us, as he deals individually with us, as he did with Peter, James, and John, as he calls us and redeems us and shows his glory and majesty to us that we then believe by faith so that we are encouraged. That's the second part of this, isn't it? It's not just a demonstration. It's a demonstration that is intended to lead to encouragement. This event changed their life. It transformed who they were. You say, well, how is that? We know that both Peter and John, uh, later as they became writers of other books in the New Testament, they both spoke of this event. They both wrote about it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were captivated by the reality that they were given access to behold the glory and majesty of God in the person of Jesus, in his face, in his being. And you can see even in the language of the text of Mark that we read going back there, beginning in verse 2, the description that follows down to verse 6, it's almost as if the writer is fumbling for words and fumbling and making a pathetic attempt at trying to describe what was happening. What did he end up saying? Uh, Whiter than any launderer could bleach it. I mean, really? Like that's all you could come up with? That they were they were awestruck. That they, 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 there were no words to describe this event. It was transforming. It was awe inspiring. He became not only in his person, in his skin, in his being. His clothes were affected by this transformation, by this transfiguration, by this metamorphosis, so that he was shining and glowing with the glory of God. But that anything on his person was shining and glowing like the glory of God. They could not stand and look at it. Un. Believable. Peter looks at him and he says in this, see, you know, you want to see how it affected him. Look, look at what Peter says. It is good for us to be here. What does he mean? Up on the mountain, beholding your glory. And, and, and let's be a little kind to Peter. He's right, isn't he? I would have wanted to stay there. And, and I, don't think that his, his, I don't think that his suggestion is all bad and all evil. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't selfishly ask for a tabernacle for himself. He, he only wants to make a tabernacle for Moses and Elijah and then Jesus, these glorified beings. Moses and Elijah had gone to be with the Lord many years before and they, they appeared in their perfected glorified bodies with Christ, having a conversation with him about what was to take place on the cross and in the end, about death, right? 
But so they appear there and Peter says, let's make a tabernacle for you guys and let's stay here. But isn't it, isn't it fascinating that, you know, Jesus doesn't take kindly to those words and Satan is present even here, I think, working and speaking through Peter. It makes sense, doesn't it? He's suggesting that Jesus simply stay up here on this mountain in his glory, that, that he be confined to this little tabernacle. You know what that would have meant? That he would have never come off the mountain to head to Jerusalem and the cross. And remember, without the cross, none of, none of this means much. And, and, and so, so, so Peter is mistaken in some ways, but I think it's maybe an honest mistake. But you can also sympathize. I mean, he would have known Zechariah 14. I'm looking to make sure that I get my reference correct. Zechariah 14 that prophesies and speaks about the messianic kingdom, that if this is the inauguration of the kingdom of the king, that, that this is a parallel account for that. Zechariah in the Old Testament prophesied and spoke of the messianic kingdom and at its coming, it being a giant celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. So Peter would have known about that. So I think it would have been maybe reasonable for him to suggest that they begin that feast and that they build those tabernacles and that they, that they are there. But I think Satan was maybe working through Peter to try to limit Jesus and to try to confine him and to try to, in some way, keep him there to prevent him from going to the cross. Because the devil knew. We saw that last time. The devil knew that the cross spelled doom for he and his followers. That, that the cross is the end. The cross is the end of evil. And so, so you see that there. Um, but they're fumbling for words. They, they can't come up with a description. They want to stay there forever. They speak of it, Peter and John do, in their later writings as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has to tell them not to tell anybody because they are overcome and they want to spread the news and share the message. What I want you to see in the details of the text here is that they were totally transformed by what they saw. That it impacted every aspect of their being such that it encouraged them, as I've said before, to walk the hard road of suffering that the cross called them to walk. Don't forget the context that Jesus prophesies about the cross, rebukes them for saying that the cross is a bad thing, and then says, you must bear your own cross if you are going to follow me. That if you're going to save your life, you must first lose it. He is telling them that the road to glory is paved with the bricks of suffering. But he's going to not just tell them, he's going to tell them they've got to trod that road, but then he's going to take them up on the mountain and show them the glory that is coming. Because it will encourage them, it will encourage them to walk the road with the very difficult steps. For the disciples, as they, you know, as they labored and as they were, I mean, listen, these men would be martyred. These men would pay with their lives for their belief in this man. Don't you think that they always, maybe these three, I mean, you think about Peter, crucified after he watched his wife crucified, upside down for his faith. Don't you think in that day he was thinking about the glory he saw on that mountain that day? I do. When Jesus in his mercy and grace demonstrates his majesty and glory to his people, when he deals uniquely with them, he gives this demonstration so as to encourage them in the hard cross-bearing of the Christian life. But it's not just for the disciples, it's also for us. There are people in this room that are suffering this morning from health problems to family problems to spiritual and psychological warfare and problems. We suffer. We suffer on account of the gospel and for Jesus. We suffer on account of sin in our own life. But as we pursue Jesus, it's not a, 
It's not an easy road as we follow after him by faith. And aren't you thankful that he gives us a glimpse, an understanding, an opportunity to be taken to the mountain to see who he is? So that he says, listen, you can trust me. Take your mind way back to Mark chapter 1. I said in probably three or four different sermons, I made the point to make clear to you in the beginning that if nothing else, Jesus is teaching his people that he is a king that can be trusted. Do you see that at work here? That it comes back full circle. That, That if he can't be trusted, then no one will ever follow after him. And he takes them on the mountain. Them, he takes us on the mountain through his word. And he shows us a glimpse of who he is so that he is uh, encouraging us that he is to be trusted and that in the end, glory is coming. They are encouraged to believe. They are encouraged to remember. They are encouraged to suffer. And so too should we. But, but, but finally and lastly, think also about how this must have encouraged Jesus. It's easy for us to think about the difficulty that the, that the uh, disciples would have had because we can identify with their suffering and difficulty. But I want you to think also carefully that in his humanity... While this is the God of gods, very God, on the mountain, he is also fully man. And we've seen him tired, and we've seen him hungry, and we've seen him thirsty, and we will see him mourning. He was a man. And I want you to think how hard it must have been for Jesus to go up onto the mountain with his eye toward Jerusalem, knowing about God's plan for the cross and for his destruction and for his brutal beating and sacrifice, the atonement that was necessary for you and for me, as he reflected back upon that, I want you to think two things. Number one, when he experienced the resurgence and the presence of his pure glory and of the perfected glorified beings, people, bodies, souls of Moses and Elijah, don't you think he longed to simply go right back where he came from? I think he must have. And he chose to stay for you and for me, knowing what was ahead. But don't you think it's because also in part that as he fellowshiped with his father and as the clouds were present and as God spoke again into creation, he assured him of their relationship together that God his father could also be trusted and that glory even for Jesus was coming. Jesus struggled in the garden before the cross. He said, Father, let this pass from me. If there's another way, let's do it that way. On the cross, he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus struggled also. He did it for me and for you. But I think that he looked back on this day and he took courage and assurance from this day to face the trouble of even his own life, which is far greater than what we will endure because he did not deserve it. And he paid with his life and his blood was spilt and he suffered at the hands of Pathetic, mortal men because of God's providence and plan for him. What a great assurance and encouragement I think it would have been for Jesus also. Friends, let me ask you this morning. Where are you in trusting Jesus by faith? I mean, have, have you heard the call of the cross and, and, and done what you could by the power of the Spirit to pick it up and put it on your back and trod the difficult road of suffering? Are you bitter about your suffering? 
and your struggle and your difficulty? Because, because if you are, then you don't understand what Jesus is doing through it. Do we struggle to believe that this man who hung on a cross has accomplished anything for us? That he's truly God and that his blood was perfect and that it was the once for all time sacrifice for sin. See, we can't see him. We can't touch him. We can't even physically go onto the mountain with him. But friends, Jesus is demonstrating to you and to me every day of our lives who he is and how beautiful and wonderful and glorious his kingdom is. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for our church, my prayer for my children, my prayer for the Gulf Coast and for Mississippi and for our country, for the world, is that people might have, might have their eyes opened, that they would be able to see these demonstrations. That when they encounter Jesus, like Peter, James, and John did on the mountain, like Paul did on the road to Damascus, that when they encounter Jesus, it is a life transforming where he shows them who he is, where he demonstrates his power and his glory, and he encourages them to believe. People ask me all the Listen, friends, what's the biggest problem people have with Christianity? I mean, there are a bunch. But one of them is certainly the simple reality of faith. They just can't believe in a guy. They would rather trust themselves. They would rather be good. They, they would rather act a certain way. They would rather do it themselves. We struggle to give control and to simply believe in this man. He is demonstrating for us and encouraging us that if we will simply have faith to walk with him to the cross, then we will die, as did he, but we will rise with him unto glory. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel. And Father, thank you that you have demonstrated according to your grace and mercy and your providence who you are, and not only that you've come, but that you have come and brought your kingdom. Thank you that at this time with these men, you showed them your glory. You, you gave them an opportunity to behold who you truly were. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, as he writes this word on our hearts, that we would also be able to see you as you are. That, that we would be given but a glimpse of your glory. That we would see the majesty and the, the, the shining light of your holiness, Psalm 99 spoke of. That, that we would be captivated by this vision, that, that we would trust and believe in who you are and in what you've done, that we might be brought by adoption as your children into your kingdom. Lord, may we experience the peace that your kingdom brings. And as we suffer today and tomorrow, Lord, may we be encouraged by the glory and the majesty and the perfection that we see in you that we know is coming to us also one day. Lord, write the gospel on our hearts and give us faith to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.